Let us pray. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, illumine the sacred page, we pray, that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This morning's Old Testament reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to, be to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Aliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadabi and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Today's gospel reading comes from the ninth chapter of Mark, verses 2 through 9. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In case it isn't clear to you yet, if his miraculous birth, extraordinary baptism, and propensity for miracles hasn't made it clear, today's passage from Mark drives the point home. Jesus has been chosen by God. With the disciples watching and Moses and Elijah standing nearby, a voice from heaven acknowledges this truth, reminding all those present on that mountaintop, and by default us here today, reminding us that Jesus is God's Son, God's Beloved. The story of the transfiguration of Jesus on a mountaintop, in my opinion, is one of the strangest moments in the Gospel narrative. It's one of the few times that despite the presence of spirits and the voice of God, nothing really significant happens. We've already heard God claim Jesus in the waters of his baptism. And while Jesus' clothes turning white is impressive, it's not all that significant. The truth is, you could take this story out from the gospel narrative and do very little damage to core Christian theology or to the message and ministry of Jesus. It's an interesting story, to be sure, but it's not all that important, which makes me wonder why, why it happened. I mean, perhaps this event, this transfiguration, this conversation with Moses and Elijah, perhaps it was for the disciples as they get ready to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, to the cross. Perhaps they need some encouragement to remind, remind themselves that the one they are following is the one chosen by God and God alone. But if that were the case, if that were the purpose of this story, why then would Jesus tell the three disciples who happened to be there, who witnessed the event, why would he tell them to keep quiet about it until the Son of Man comes in glory? If this transfiguration is for them and by default us, why not shout it from that mountaintop? Well, I wonder, I wonder if this moment wasn't for us. I wonder if it was for Jesus. What if at this point in his journey, 
a journey he knows will lead to his untimely death. What if at this point he needs a pep talk of sorts? What if Jesus needs one last reminder that he has been chosen by God? Being chosen. There's nothing quite like hearing your name called out above all other names. Nothing like being picked out of the crowd. Nothing like knowing that someone, anyone, thinks you're special. Sitting in the waiting room outside the office with the three other finalists for the job, Susan didn't like her chances. To her left sat a recent graduate of an Ivy League university who just looked smart. You know those people? So annoying. Across from her was a man in his mid-30s with a chiseled body who looked like a professional athlete. And to her right was Susan's toughest competition, a tall woman in her prime with crystal clear blue eyes and perfect skin. Sitting there with the brain, the jock, and the beauty queen, Susan felt really out of place. She felt out of place with her degree from a local city college, her pantsuit from Sears, and her rather uninspiring build. The interview had gone well, but sitting there in the room with those people, Susan knew she would not be chosen. And as this realization washed over her, she found herself back in school, in elementary school, standing with her friends, waiting to be chosen for the kickball team. Susan was barely average, and everybody knew it. Being chosen. There's nothing quite like hearing your name called out above all other names, nothing like being picked out of a crowd, nothing like knowing that someone, anyone, thinks you are special. There's only one problem. Few of us ever have that moment. Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, was asked once by a reporter why he wrote so much about losing in his comic strips. I write about losing, he said, because most people are more used to losing than they are winning. As much as the world applauds a winner, let's be honest, no offense, but most of us are losers. Most of us are much more familiar with that awful feeling of being passed over overlooked, ignored. We're much more familiar with those experiences than we are with being crowned as the winner. Maybe this is why during the Oscars or the great British baking show, as the winners are announced, the cameras often focus not on the winners, but on the losers, getting their reaction when the winner is named. The producers seem to know that it's that moment of recognition on the losers' faces that most of the viewers will best identify with. Being chosen, there's nothing quite like hearing your name called out above all other names, nothing like being picked out of a crowd, nothing like knowing that someone, anyone, thinks you're special. Today's Old Testament story you heard read is about an unlikely choice. The prophet Samuel is grieving the downfall of King Saul. A few years earlier, despite his constant warnings about the dangers of a monarchy, the people demanded a king to rule over them. So after conferring with God, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. And Saul was a good choice. He was strong, a successful soldier. And according to the Bible, he stood head and shoulders above all others in Israel. 
Despite his outstanding pedigree, however, Saul didn't do so well as Israel's first king, and he slowly but surely slipped out of God's favor. Grieving the downfall of Saul and wondering what kind of person could ever be king, the prophet Samuel reluctantly follows God's command to journey to Bethlehem in secret to choose from among the sons of Jesse, Israel's future king. At a mock sanctification ceremony, Samuel begins his covert interview process. The first son to arrive is Liab, a handsome man whose mountainous size and rough-hewn looks commanded everyone's attention. Eliab was a man's man. Surely, Samuel thought, this one has what it takes to be king, but despite Samuel's certainty, God makes it clear he is not. So in walks Abinadab, the intellectual giant of the family, perhaps, a tall man with a killer IQ. Abinadab stood before Samuel with a -a once-in-a-generation mind, but despite his gift, God made it clear Abinadab was not the one either. Next in line was Shema, the warrior, perhaps, of the family, who was renowned for his skill with the sword. But God wasn't all that interested in his successes as a warrior, and so Shema was passed over as well. Now, after the third son, the next four kids don't even get mentioned in the Bible, but I think we have a decent idea of who they were. I think the next two sons of Jesse were twins named Tyler and Tommy, who had recently completed an ad campaign for a local drink called Canaanite Brew. You can imagine Tyler and Tommy being annoyingly good-looking and loved by all the people, but God wasn't all that impressed. Next was Christopher, perhaps, referred to as the Holy One of all his brothers. His faith was unparalleled. Samuel thought, surely this is the one God was looking for, but no. Christopher, despite his devotion to God, was not the one either. And that left, let's call him Barry. Barry had a unique talent. He could always get his way. He was a master manipulator. But despite how handy exploitation would be for a king, Barry was not the one either. The procession of Jesse's sons was over. The best of his stock had passed in front of Samuel. And not one was chosen by God. Not one. Confused, Samuel turns to Jesse and asks a great question. Um, Are these all your sons? Well, we know the answer to that question. There was one more. The future slayer of Goliath. The tempter of Bathsheba. The murderer of Uriah. The author of most of the Psalms. And the future king of Israel. I don't know if you noticed it, but the most famous son of Jesse's family enters the story today unnamed, only referred to as the baby brother or the Hakwatan, a Hebrew word that carries with it undertones of insignificance. In other words, as author Eugene Peterson likes to put it, David was the family runt. While today we assume the youngest child leads a life of privilege, In that day, the youngest was last in line to receive the family inheritance. Jesse didn't even bother bother to bring him to the ceremony. Even if he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes like the Bible tells us, David was at the bottom of the pecking order. In the eyes of those who mattered, David was the least qualified for the job. And yet God chooses him. Two stories, both about being chosen. In one, the story of the transfiguration, God's eternal choice of Jesus is reaffirmed with a public display of affection. And it's a moment that, while interesting to us, really isn't 
maybe for us? The other story, the story of David, is, however, a story for us. For if God chooses David to be king, if God chooses David, the murderer, the adulterer, the liar, the cheat, the run to the litter, and the one who moves in and out of faithfulness, then maybe God will choose us too. Being chosen, there's nothing quite like hearing your name called out above all their names, nothing like being picked out of the crowd, nothing like knowing that someone, anyone, thinks you're special. Brett was standing on a subway platform during rush hour when he noticed a strange man stopping in front of each person on the platform, looking them in the eyes, saying something to them, and then moving on. It turns out what the guy was saying to people was whether they could stay or go, whether they were in or out. The man would look each person in the eye, pause, and say either, you, you're out, you're gone, or you, yeah, you're okay, you can stay. As Brett watched this scene unfold at the other end of the platform, he started to realize that he was feeling nervous as the man walked toward him. He felt a little tinge of fear as he wondered if he would make the cut. The man finally reached a small group with whom Brett was standing. He quickly dismissed a 50-year-old woman in a business suit. A guy in baggy shorts and a bull's uniform made the cut. And a young immigrant mother who seemed not to grasp the significance of the situation was also given the okay. The guy then walked up to Brett, stood a little bit too close to him, and said, you, you can stay. Brett recounts how surprised it was that how good that moment made him feel, how good it felt to have been chosen by this stranger, a man who knew nothing about him, a fellow human being for whom he had done nothing. Brett writes, he almost felt euphoric. Being chosen, there's nothing quite like hearing your name called out above all other names, nothing like being picked out of a crowd, nothing like knowing that someone, anyone thinks you are special. Even Jesus, it seems, needed reassurance that he was chosen, that God was with him on his special journey of faith. So on the cusp of the season of Lent, when we come face to face with our mortality, and our need for God's grace, let me remind you one more time that you, too, have been chosen by God. You are God's beloved. David's story is your story. There is nothing you need to do to make yourself more worthy of God's love. There is no amount of praying or studying or serving you can do to make yourself more appealing to your Creator. In your baptism, God has called out your name and claimed you. And God didn't choose you based on merit. God chose you as you are to make a point. And the point is this. God's love, God's favor, God's blessing, it is freely given. It is not, ever will be, never will be earned. You have been chosen. You, yes, you, are God's beloved. Know this and begin your Lenten journey in peace.
Amen.